Chapter 14 of On Secret Service Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents by William Nelson Taft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 Wali and the Flower of Heaven. Yes, there's quite a story attached to that remarked Bill Quinn one evening, as the conversation first lagged and then drifted away into silence. We were seated in his den at the time, the library which he had ornamented with relics of a score or more of cases in which the various governmental detective services had distinguished themselves, and I came to with a start. "'What?' I exclaimed. "'Story in what?' in that hatchet the one on the wall there that you were speculating about it didn't take a psychological sleuth to follow your eyes and read the look of speculation in them that's a trick that a sparrow cop could pull well then suppose you pay the penalty for your wisdom and spin the yarn i retorted none the less glad of the opportunity to hear the facts behind the sinister red stain which appeared on the blade of the chinese weapon for i knew that quinn could give them to me if he wished frankly i don't know the full history of the hatchet came the answer from the other side of the fireplace possibly it goes back to the ming dynasty whenever that was or possibly it was purchased from a mail-order house in chicago chop suey isn't the only chinese article made in this country you know but my interest in it commenced with the night when ezra marks however let's start at the beginning marks continued the former operative was as you probably recall one of the best men ever connected with the customs service it was he who solved the biggest diamond smuggling case on record and he was also responsible for the discovery of the manner in which thirty thousand yards of very valuable silk was being run into the country every year without visiting the custom office that's a piece of the silk up there over the picture of mrs armitage it wasn't many months before the affair of the dillingham diamonds that official washington in general and the offices of the custom service in particular grew quite excited over the fact that a lot of opium was finding its way into california of course there's always a fair amount of hop on the market provided you know where to look for it and the government has about as much chance of keeping it out altogether as it has of breaking up the trade of moonshine whiskey the mountaineer is going to have his liquor and the chink is going to have his dope no matter what you do but it's up to the Internal Revenue Bureau and the Customs Service to see that neither one arrives in wholesale quantities. And that was just what was happening on the coast. In fact, it was coming in so fast that the price was dropping every day, and the California authorities fairly burned up the wires cross-continent with their howls for help. At that time, Marks, ezra by name and e z by nickname was comparatively a new member of the force he had rendered valuable service in boston however and the chief sent for him and put the whole thing in his hands get out to san diego as quickly as you know how 
snapped the chief, tossing over a sheaf of yellow telegraph slips. "'There's all the information we have, and apparently you won't get much more out there, unless you dig it up for yourself. All they seem to know is that the stuff is coming in by the carload and is being peddled in all the hop joints at a lower price than ever before. It's up to you to get the details. Any help you need will be supplied from the San Francisco office, but my advice is to play a lone hand. You're likely to get further than if you have a gang with you all the time. That's my idea, Chief, drawled Ezra, who hailed from Vermont and had all the New Englanders' affection for single-handed effort, not because he had the least objection to sharing the glory, but simply because he considered it the most efficient way to work. I'll get right out there and see how the land lays. Needn't bother to report until you discover something worthwhile, added the chief. I'll know that you're on the job, and the farther you keep away from headquarters, the less suspicion you're likely to arouse. This was the reason that, beyond the fact that they knew that an operative named Marks had been sent from Washington to look into the opium matter, the government agents on the coast were completely in the dark as to the way in which the affair was being handled. In fact, the chief himself was pretty well worried when two months slipped by without a word from Ezra. But the big, raw-boned Yankee was having troubles of his own. Likewise, he took his instructions very seriously, and didn't see the least reason for informing Washington of the very patent fact that he had gotten nowhere and found out nothing. "'They know where they can reach me,' he argued to himself one night, about the time that the chief began to wonder if his man were floating around the bay with a piece of Chinese rope about his neck. "'Unless I get a wire, they won't hear anything until I have at least a line on this gang.' Then, on going over the evidence which he had collected during the weeks that he had been in San Diego, he found that there was extremely little of it. Discreet questioning had developed the fact, which he already knew, that opium was plentiful all along the coast, and that, presumably, it was supplied from a point in the south of the state but all his efforts to locate the source of the drug brought him up against a blank wall. In order to conduct his investigations with a minimum of suspicion, Marx had elected to enter San Diego in the guise of a derelict, a character which he had played to such perfection that two weeks after he arrived he found himself in court on the charge of vagrancy. Only the fact that the presiding magistrate did not believe in sentencing first offenders saved him from ten days in the workhouse, an opportunity which he was rather sorry to miss, because he figured that he might pick up some valuable leads from the opium addicts among his fellow prisoners. The only new point which he had developed during his stay in the underworld was that someone named Sprague, presumably an American, was the brains of the opium ring, and had perfected the entire plan. But who Sprague was, or where he might be found, were matters which were kept in very watchful secrecy. "'I give it up,' muttered the operative, shrugging his arms into a threadbare coat and shambling out of the disreputable rooming-house which passed for home. 
Work doesn't seem to get me anywhere. Guess I'll have to trust to luck. And he wandered out for his nightly stroll through the Chinese quarter, hoping against hope that something would happen. It did, in bunches. Possibly it was luck, possibly it was fate, which, after all, is only another name for luck, that brought him into an especially unsavory portion of the city shortly after midnight. He had wandered along for three hours or more, with no objective in view, save occasional visits to dive where he was known, when he heard something which caused him to whirl and automatically reach for his hip pocket. It was the cry of a woman, shrill and clear, the cry of a woman in mortal danger. It had only sounded once, but there was a peculiar muffled quality at the end of the note, suggestive of a hand or a gag having been placed over the woman's mouth. Then silence, so still as to be almost oppressive. Puzzled, Mark stood stock still and waited. So far as he could remember, that was the first time that he had heard anything of the kind in Chinatown. He knew that there were women there, but they were kept well in the background, and, apparently, were content with their lot. The woman who had screamed, however, was in danger of her life. Behind one of those flimsy walls some drama was being enacted in defiance of the law. Something was being done which meant danger of the most deadly kind to him who dared to interfere. For a full minute Marx weighed the importance of his official mission against his sense of humanity. Should he take a chance on losing his prey merely to try to save a woman's life? Should he attempt to find the house from which the scream had come and force the door? Should he... But the question was solved for him in a manner even more startling than the cry in the night. While he was still debating, the door of a house directly in front of him opened wide and a blinding glare of light spread fanwise into the street. Across this there shot the figure of what Marx at first took to be a man, a figure attired in a long, heavily embroidered jacket and silken trousers. As it neared him, however, the operative sensed that it was a woman, and an instant later he knew that it was the woman whose stifled scream had halted him only a moment before. Straight toward Marx she came, and close behind her, their faces set in a look of deadly implacable rage, raced two large Chinamen. Probably realizing that she stood no chance of escape in the open street, the woman darted behind Marks and prepared to dodge her pursuers. As she did so, the operative caught her panting appeal, Save me! For the sake of the God, save me! That was all that was necessary. Ezra sensed in an instant the fact that he had become embroiled in what bade fair to be a tragedy and braced himself for action. He knew that he had no chance for holding off both men, particularly as he did not care to precipitate gunplay, but there was the hope that he might divert them until the girl escaped. As the first of the two men leaped toward him, Marks swung straight for his jaw, 
but his assailant ducked with what was almost professional rapidity, and the blow was only a glancing one. Before the operative had time to get set, the other man was upon him, and in utter silence, save for their labored breathing and dull thuds as blows went home, they fought their way back to the far side of the street. As he retreated, Marks became conscious that, instead of making her escape, the girl was still behind him. The reason for this became apparent when the larger of the Chinamen suddenly raised his arm and the light from the open doorway glinted on the blade of a murderous, short-handled axe, the favorite weapon of Tong warfare. Straight for his head the blade descended, but the girl's arm, thrust out of the darkness behind him, diverted the blow, and the hatchet fairly whistled as it passed within an inch of his body. Realizing that his only hope of safety lay in reaching the opposite side of the sidewalk, where he would be able to fight with his back against the wall, Marks resumed his retreat, his arms moving like flails, his fists crashing home blows that lost much of their power by reason of the heavily padded jackets of his opponents. Finally, after seconds that seemed like hours, one of his blows found the jaw of the man nearest him, and Marks wheeled to set himself for the onrush of the other, the man with the hatchet. But just at that moment his foot struck the uneven curbing and threw him off his balance. He was conscious of an arc of light as the blade sang through the air. He heard a high, half-muffled cry from the girl beside him, and he remembered trying to throw himself out of the way of the hatchet. Then there was a stinging, smarting pain in the side of his head and in his left shoulder, followed by the blackness of oblivion. From nowhere, apparently a long distance off, there came a voice which brought back at least a part of the operative's last failing consciousness, a voice which called a name vaguely familiar to him. "'Sprague! Sprague!' "'Sprague?' muttered Marks, trying to collect himself. "'Who is Sprague?' Then, as he put it later, he went off. How much time elapsed before he came to, he was unable to say, but subsequent developments indicated that it was at least a day and a night. He hadn't the slightest idea what had occurred, meanwhile. He only knew that he seemed to drift back to consciousness and a realization that his head was splitting as if it would burst. Mechanically he stretched his legs and tried to rise, only to find that what appeared to be a wooden wall closed him in on all sides, leaving an opening only directly above him. For an appreciable time he lay still, trying to collect his thoughts. He recalled the fight in the open street, the intervention of the girl, the fall over the curb, and then there was something that he couldn't remember something vital that had occurred just after he had tried to dodge the hatchet-blade. "'Yes,' he murmured, as memory returned. "'It was someone calling for Sprague, Sprague.' "'Hush!' came a whispered command out of the darkness which surrounded him, and a hand, soft and very evidently feminine, 
covered his mouth. "'You must not mention that name here. It means the death, instant and terrible. They are discussing your fate in there now, but if they had thought that you knew Wali, your life would not be worth a yen.' "'Wali? Who is he?' Marks replied, his voice pitched in an undertone. I don't remember any Wali. And who are you? Who I am does not matter, came out of the darkness. But Wali, he is the master of life and death, the high priest of the flower of heaven. Had it not been for him, you would have been dead before this. But I thought... That he desired your life? So he did, and does. But they have to plan the way in which it is to be taken, and the disposition which is to be made of your body. That was what gave me my opportunity for binding up your wound and watching for you to wake. In spite of himself, Marx could not repress a slight shudder. So they were saving him for the sacrifice, eh? They were going to keep him here until their arrangements were complete and then make away with him, were they? Moving cautiously, so as to avoid attracting attention, the operative slipped his right hand toward his hip pocket, only to find that his automatic was missing. As he settled back with a half-moan, he felt something cold slipped into the box beside him, and the girl's voice whispered, "'Your revolver! I secured it when they brought you in here. I thought you might need it later.' but be very careful. They must not suspect that you have wakened. I will, promised Marks. But who are you? Why should you take such an interest in me? You tried to save me from something that is worse than death, replied the girl. You failed, but it was not your fault. Could I do less than to help you? But what was it you feared? Marriage! Marriage to the man I loathe above all others, the man who is responsible for the opium that is drugging my people, the man who is known as Wali, but who is really an American. Here she hesitated for a moment, and then hissed, Sprague. Sprague? Marx echoed, sitting bolt upright. But the girl had gone swallowed up somewhere in the impenetrable darkness which filled the room. His brain cleared by the realization that he had blundered into the heart of the opium-runner's den, it took Ezra only a few seconds to formulate a plan of action. The first thing, of course, was to get away. But how could that be accomplished when he did not even know where he was, or anything about the house? The girl had said something about the fact that they were considering his fate. Who were they, and where were they? Obviously, the only way to find out was to do a little scouting on his own account. So, slowly and carefully, he raised himself clear of the box-like arrangements in which he had been placed, and tried to figure out his surroundings. His hand, groping over the side, came into almost instant contact with the floor, 
and he found it a simple matter to step out into what appeared to be a cleared space in the center of a comparatively large room. Then, curious as to the place where he had been concealed, he felt the box from one end to the other. The sides were about two feet high and slightly sloping, with an angle near the head. In fact, both ends of the affair were narrower than the portion which had been occupied by his shoulders. Piled up at either end of this box were others, of the same shape and size. What could their purpose be? Why the odd shape? Suddenly the solution of the mystery flashed across the operative's mind. Coffins! Coffins which appeared to be piled up on all sides of the storeroom. Was this the warehouse for a Chinese undertaker, or was it... One coffin over which he nearly tripped gave him the answer. It was partly filled with cans, unlabeled and quite heavy, containers which Marks felt certain were packed full of opium and smuggled in some manner inside the coffins. Just as he arrived at this conclusion, Marks's eye was caught by a tiny streak of light filtering through the wall on the opposite side of the room. Making his way carefully toward this, he found that the crack presented a fairly complete view of an adjoining apartment, in which three Chinese, evidently of high degree, were sorting money and entering accounts in large books. As he looked, a fourth figure entered the room, a man who caused him to catch his breath and flatten himself against the wall for he recognized the larger of the two Chinamen who had attacked him the night before, or whenever it was. This was the man to whom the girl had alluded as Wa Li, High Priest of the Flower of Heaven, which was merely another way of saying that he had charge of the opium shipments. As he entered, the others rose and remained standing until he had seated himself. Then one of them commenced to speak in rapid, undistinguishable Chinese. Before he had time to pronounce more than a few words, however, Wali interrupted him with a command couched in English to, "'Cut that out! You know I don't understand that gibberish well enough to follow you.' "'Beg pardon,' replied the other. "'I always forget.' You are so like one of us that, even in private, I find it hard to remember. Wali said nothing, but slipping off his silken jacket, settled back at his ease. A moment later, Marks was amazed to see him remove his mandarin's cap, and with it came a wig of coal-black hair. For the first time, the government agent realized what the girl had meant when she intimated that Wali and Sprague were one and the same, an American who was masquerading as Chinese in order to further his smuggling plans. "'Word has just arrived,' continued the man who had first spoken, "'that the boat will be off Point Banda tonight. That will allow us to pick up the coffins before daybreak and bury them until such time as the American hounds are off their guard. Yes, grunted Sprague, and let's hope that soon. We must have fifty thousand dollars worth of the stuff cashed on the other side of the border, and orders are coming in faster than we can fill them. 
I think it would be best to run this cargo right in. We can stage a funeral if necessary and avoid suspicion in that way. Wait a minute. I've got a hunch. What about the bum we carried in here last night, the one that tried to help Anita in her getaway? Anita? Yes, my girl. I can't remember that rigmarole you people call her. Anita's her name from now on. He is in the next room, unconscious. Two of the men dumped him in one of the empty coffins and let him stay there. Good, chuckled Sprague. We'll just let him remain, run him across the border and bring his body back in a big hearse. The coffin and the body will be real, but there'll be enough cans of dope packed in and around him and in the carriages of the mourners to make us all rich. It's the chance of a lifetime for a big play, because no one will ever suspect us or even inquire into his identity. Behind the thin wall which separated him from the next room, Marks stiffened, and his fingers wound themselves even more tightly around the butt of his automatic. It is not given to many men to hear their death sentence pronounced in a manner as dramatic and cold-blooded as were the words which came from the outer apartment. By listening intently, Ezra learned that the coup would be sprung sometime within the next few hours, the conspirators feeling that it would not be safe to delay, as the opium shipment was due before dawn. Moving silently and aided somewhat by the fact that his eyes had become a little accustomed to the inky blackness, Marks made his way back to the place where he had awakened. He knew that that was where they would expect to find him, and he also knew that this was the one place to avoid. So he located the door and, finding it bolted from the outside, placed himself where he would be at least partly sheltered when the party entered. After what seemed to be an interminable time, he finally heard a sound from the hallway, the soft slip-slip of felt shoes approaching. Then the bolt was withdrawn and the door opened, admitting the four men whom he had seen in the other room, and behind them, carrying a lantern, came the girl. Nerving himself for a supreme leap, Marks waited until all five visitors were inside the room, and then started to slip through the open doorway. But his movement attracted the attention of the man called Sprague, and, with a cry of warning, he wheeled and fired before the operative could gain the safety of the hall. Knowing that his body, outlined against the light from outside, would make an ideal target, Ezra dropped to the floor and swung his automatic into action. As he did so, the girl extinguished the lantern with a single swift blow, leaving the room in total blackness, save for the path made by the light in the hallway. For probably twenty seconds there wasn't a sound. Then Marks caught a glimpse of a moving figure and fired, leaping to one side as he did so in order to avoid the fusillade directed at the flash of his revolver. By a cry from the other side of the room he knew that his shot had gone home, and a moment later he had an opportunity to wing another of his assailants 
again drawing a volley of shots. The last shot in his clip fired with a prayer, but it evidently went home, for only silence, punctuated by moans from the opposite side of the room, ensued. That night, concluded Quinn, a big sailing vessel was met off Point Banda, and they found a full month's supply of opium aboard of her. A search of Lower California, near the border, also disclosed a burying ground, with many of the graves packed with cans of the drug. The raid, of course, was a violation of Mexican neutrality, but they got away with it. "'The girl?' I cut in. "'What became of her?' When the police reached the house a few moments after Marks had fired the last shot, they found that Sprague was dead with one of Ezra's bullets through his brain. The three Chinamen were wounded, but not fatally. The girl, however, was huddled in a corner, dead. No one ever discovered whether she stopped one of the bullets from Marks's revolver, or whether she was killed by Sprague's men as a penalty for putting out the lantern. Undoubtedly, that saved Ezra's life which was the reason that he saw that she was given a decent funeral and an adequate memorial erected over her grave. He also kept her jacket as a memento of the affair, turning the hatchet over to me for my collection. Under it you will find a copy of the wire he sent the chief. Curious, I went over and read the yellow slip framed beneath the weapon. Opium smuggled in coffins. American, at head of ring, dead. Gang broken up. Opium seized. What next? Marks. Didn't wait long for another assignment, did he? I inquired. No, was the response. When you're working for Uncle Sam, you come to find that excitement is about the only thing that keeps your nerves quiet. Sometimes, as in Marks's case, it's the thrill of the actual combat. But more often, it's the search for a tangible clue, the groping in the dark for something you know exists, but which you can't lay your hands on. That was the trouble with the Cheney case. End of chapter 14